Well, good morning, everyone. So thankful to the Lord for the opportunity that we have to be together week by week. And so thankful that at the end of it all, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I just want to give you a couple of more uh, pieces of information about what's coming in the next few weeks. As you know, next week is family camp. And so Pastor Brian and myself will be with the group that is gathered there. There will be church service here at the same time. 9 a.m., and you'll have the pleasure of hearing from Pastor Art Worthington from our sister church, Evangelical Free Church of Paradise. Pastor Art and I have developed a friendship over the last few years, and of course, this church has been very supportive of Pastor Art and his church, and there's good things going on there. The church is starting to grow again, and people are starting to come back, and new people are coming in, and so hopefully you have a chance to hear from Pastor Art next week some of what's going on there. Now, he had given me his word already a few months ago that he could stand in for me next week, and he said, I'll have no trouble finding my replacement, but it turns out he did have some trouble finding his replacement, so he's going to do double duty next week, so he'll be with us in the morning, and then he'll have to leave shortly thereafter so he can go up to the ridge and handle a service there, and I told him I, I owe him one, and we're hoping to do a pulpit swap uh, sometime in the future while I'll go up on the ridge, and he'll come down and as we continue to build the relationship that we have with our sister church there. Two weeks from today, I want you to think about who you're going to invite, family members to come. We're going to have a big baptism service. And I've been meeting with the uh, baptism candidates one by one, and there's going to be several. I don't have the exact number yet, but we're going to turn it into a full baptism celebration two weeks from today. So get ready for that. Those are those times in the life of a family that we enjoy. You'll get to hear their testimonies of how Christ has been at work in their lives, and you'll get to see the, them following the Lord through the waters of baptism. And there's young and old that will be part of that, so just to be a visible reminder that the gospel truly is for all people. Well, one day there were two men that were walking down the street talking about religion, and they only had a modest idea of Christianity. But they got to arguing with one another about who knew more. So they decided to make a little friendly wager. And one man challenged the other. He said, oh, well, if you're so religious, let me hear you quote the Lord's Prayer. I'll bet you $10 you can't do it. And without hesitation, the second man started. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And after he finished, the first man hung his head and fished for his wallet and pulled out $10 and said, I didn't think he could do it. It's just an anecdote. It's just a silly story. But it sort of moves us to ask some questions. Do we really understand the purpose of prayer? Or, though we might be able to recite the Lord's Prayer and know that it's an important part of the history of the church, could we explain its meaning? Could we talk about what each little part of, that pr part of that prayer means? And then, just to get a little closer to home, if we were to evaluate our regular prayer of practice, assuming that we all have a regular prayer of practice, how would it measure up according to the principles that Jesus lays out in these few verses in Matthew chapter 6? I have to confess in my own life, I'm grateful to the Lord that several times as I have looked at the Lord's prayer, he's brought me up short to remind me that my prayers aren't always 
in accordance with his will, aren't always in accordance with his plans, I tend to get a little bit self-absorbed in my prayers. And this becomes a good anecdote to help me to realize what are those principles according to which God, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ would have us pray. And so this morning we have the privilege of continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And may the Lord give us ears to hear. May he give us eyes to see. May he give us hearts to believe, wills to receive. I know we've been standing a lot this morning. But I'm going to invite you one more time to stand as we hear from God, as we read his word this morning. As we continue in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 9, reading down to verse 15. And the inspired and truthful word of God says... Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we recognize our great need for you. And even as we have sung this morning, how grateful we are that you deal with our sins. Father, may we be ever mindful of the need to continue to recognize them before you. And Father, as we desire to pray in a way that is honoring to you, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you guide us by your spirit as we study your word so that Jesus would be exalted as we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the verses we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus taught us how not to pray. Pretending to be like an actor, pretending to be something that we are not. That we might be trapped into seeking the praise of men over against the approval of God. We saw that neither are we to pray like the Gentiles or the pagans or those who think through ritual or endless repetition or through magical words that somehow they could get what they want from God. We're reminded that Jesus is not against long prayers, nor is he against repeated prayers, but what he is against are prayers that simply become rote or routine and seek to manipulate God instead of glorifying him. We answered the question, as Jesus said, your father already knows what you need before you you ask him. Well, if God already knows all, then why do we pray? And we looked at a couple of answers. We said we pray, first of all, because he commands us to pray. And if our God commands us to pray, that should already be enough. But we pray because we need to pray. We're the needy ones. We're the helpless ones. We're the ones that need wisdom and strength and provision and guidance. And so we pray. We pray because prayer builds our relationship with God. It's a way of getting to know the heart of God as we pray and as we hear him through his word and as we share our heart with him. It builds our relationship with him. And we pray because the same God who knows everything ahead of time is the one who also ordains the manner in which those things will come to pass. And so prayer is ordained by God so that his work will be accomplished as he gladly and willingly works through his people. We saw that ultimately prayer was not about changing God, it's about changing us. So that our heart, our mind, our thoughts, our attitudes would be conformed to his word, to his truth, to his attitude, to his mind. Prayer humbles us because it puts us in a position of need 
It's a recognition that he is the sovereign one. And that's the best place for us to be. Needy people who sit at the feet of the Father who invites us to come. Now, early in Matthew, we saw that Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if that is true, we should find our hunger for what comes out of the mouth of God growing evermore. That's why we study the Word of God, because we know it is the life-giving force, as it were, of our very lives. If every breath that we have comes from God, then we will gladly be dependent upon Him in prayer. And so after showing us how not to pray, Jesus now turns our attention to focus how we should pray. And this is a well-known prayer. But how many of us have spent time to realize that it lays out the essential elements of prayer? Teaching on prayer that will reach the heart and the ears of God. And so we do well this morning, even if it's oh so familiar to us. Perhaps from the time we learned this prayer at the knees of our grandmother we do well to heed the instructions of what Jesus says here. Dr. E. Stanley Jones was a longtime missionary to in India, and he was known to be a man of great spiritual insight who helped many come to a deeper understanding of the Christian life. And I like what he says about prayer. He says, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. And then he goes on and explains. If I throw a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to me and my will, but it's the aligning of me and my will with the will of God. Well, with that important reminder, let's delve deeper into this passage this morning as we look at our first major point, focus on the Father. So Jesus instructs us, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. As we said last week, Jesus here gives us a model. He gives us a guide. He's not saying we have to repeat these words, though they do reflect the heart and will of God. And we may find it helpful at times to repeat these words because after all, they're inspired scripture. And if all scripture is inspired of God and useful for teaching, well then certainly these words that flow from the mouth of Jesus are useful for teaching. And it may be good for us at times to say this prayer and then analyze where we are at in our own walk and relationship with the Lord in prayer. But he begins by drawing attention to our Father. Prayer that reaches God's heart starts with God himself. It starts with God's purposes. It starts with God's will. And I want you to notice as we move through this prayer how often Jesus uses the word our, O-U-R, in this prayer. It's prayer that is offered as we gather because prayer often is to be offered as we gather because prayer is often to be a gathering thing that we do. Yes, of course, we can pray individually. Yes, of course, we can pray on our own. But what Jesus wants to draw our attention to is the important role of public prayer as the gathered people of God. The very name of the church means gathering. And one of the important gatherings that we do when we gather is we pray. And we pray to our Father. Notice the attention is drawn away from me and Jesus to his people and him, our Father. This is how we pray. And so we review again, well, who is this Father? Who is our Father? And we can make a long list, but it directs our attention to who is the one to whom we're speaking. He's the Holy One. 
He's the sovereign one. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the judge. He's the ruler. He's the Lord. And so as we pray, our eyes are lifted up as we're drawing attention to the one who is great, who is good, who is merciful, who is altogether lovely, and who invites his children to come into his presence and address him as our father. Our father is the one who is in heaven. He sits on the throne of the universe, surrounded by holy and heavenly beings. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And as the prophet Isaiah had an amazing encounter with God, he was allowed to hear what was going on in the heavenlies as he heard the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As we go to our Father who is in heaven, we recognize that we're in the presence of the one where there is no stain, no sin, no impurity, no imperfection. He is holy, and he is the one to whom we turn and pray. So we focus on him, and then that leads us to the divine design for prayer, the divine design for prayer. And so after Jesus has taken the time to show us how we're not to pray, he wants to instruct us into how to pray and what the proper focus should be in our prayers. And notice that he starts on three main things, all that focus on God, his goodness, his greatness, his holiness, his loveliness. And so we pray for the glory of his name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All throughout the scriptures, a person's name is often bound up with his character, his nature, his actions. How much more so is that true of God? Father, we pray, may your name be sanctified. May it be lifted up as holy. May it be set apart. May it be seen as other. May it be revered, respected, honored, and never used in a flippant manner. Do you ever catch yourself using God's name in a flippant manner? Oh, it's all around us on television and radio and even in conversation, people calling upon God when they really have no desire to respect and honor and revere him. But we're to be the ones who are to hold his name in high honor, reflected in the words on our lips and the attitudes of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. We're never to use his name just as a mere utterance of surprise or anger. And so this pushes us then to consider what this means. As we pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want his name to be seen as holy, and that should profoundly impact the words that we use, the thoughts that we allow to percolate through our minds, the attitudes that we reflect upon in our hearts. And all that we do, we're to guard his name as holy, as reverent, as awesome in the truest sense of the word. Think of the Ten Commandments. You'll have no gods before me. You'll have no graven images. Honor my name and keep it holy. Honor my day and keep it holy. Do we consider the things of God to be holy? Or do we allow ourselves to become a little bit lazy in our use of words and our thoughts? Do we understand what we mean when we say, Father, 
hallowed be your name. It should almost drop us to our knees because we're standing or we're kneeling or we're lying down or sitting in the presence of the Holy One. You notice the focus of prayer. Our Father in heaven, our focus turns away from us, turns away from this world, turns away from our passions and desires. Our Father, may your name be magnified and sanctified. And then secondly, we pray for the coming of his kingdom. The coming of his kingdom. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Of course, the kingdom of heaven is where God rules and he reigns. And we know that he is king and he will be king over all one day as he brings every enemy into full submission. But when we come to Christ through faith and repentance and enter the kingdom of heaven, we are now subject to a new ruler in our lives. We're now in the kingdom of heaven. And as we pray your kingdom come, it is a prayer of longing for his rule and his reign to be over us and everything in all of creation. Is that the longing of your heart? Or do you prefer to keep the keys, just let them come along for a ride? How often might we be tempted to pray, you know, Lord, I want you to take care of that issue over there and take care of that thing over there, but just let me keep doing my thing. But when we pray, your kingdom come, we're saying that we long for his reign and rule to come to full fruition, even over our lives. You see how that will change the way we pray if we recognize what are we praying for according to the instructions of Jesus. And we know that when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom. That's why you could say the kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven is here. He brought it in. In its initial stages, and we see some of the initial fruit, but it's not yet come in fullness, which will happen when he returns in power and great glory, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes on the clouds of heaven and sets all things right. And so we live in that now, but not yet. We experience a foretaste. We experience a little bit of the glimpse, but not all that we're going to see and experience one day. We experience a bit of the joy of our salvation, a bit of the power of our salvation, but it's going to come in its fullness one day. And so we pray your kingdom come. Because we recognize that we are first and foremost citizens of a kingdom that will never end. And the church then is composed of those who are in Christ from all over, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the true kingdom of God is the one that never goes out of style, will never come to an end, will always be there. And so, yes, we are Christians first and citizens, citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And then as salt and light, we live as citizens in our country. But as we have entered the kingdom of heaven through faith in Christ, he wants to show and to manifest and for others to see what those kingdom values are. And that's what it means to be salt and light. And so we want him to be seen in our lives, in our world, in our situations. We long to see him face to face. Let your kingdom come, we pray. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will have the, the holiness of God, the satisfaction that comes with God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Let your kingdom come. Is that the desire of your heart? 
is your prayer in tune with the prayer that Jesus is teaching us here. When we pray this way, we are saying, Lord, come with power and with glory. We long for Psalm 2 to be fulfilled. But there's a promise where the men of this world are rebelling against the one in heaven who laughs and says, I have appointed a king in Zion, my holy one. And Jesus will inherit all the nations as his blessing and reward. And it is Jesus before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for that to come. But when we pray your kingdom come, we recognize as well that though it will be for our salvation and the glorification of our Savior, it will be judgment and destruction on the enemies of God. That we're calling for the events of Revelation 19 to come to pass where Jesus brings in the kingdom and is glorified and crushes his enemies in holy and righteous judgment. And so we pray. Thy kingdom come, because we long for Jesus to be vindicated. We long for wickedness to be brought to an end. We long for righteousness to be manifested in full. And it's something to which we look forward to. But as we pray your kingdom come, would your heart also pray for those that are lost? And say, oh God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would they repent and believe before it's too late? Thirdly, we pray for the doing of his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The heart of the believer cries out, your will, not mine. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Is that how you approach the scriptures in the morning? As you pray, as you seek to know what his will is and who he is. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Of course, this was fully lived out in perfection by our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the garden overcame the temptation and said, not my will, but yours, O Lord. But of course, he did it all throughout his life in its entirety from beginning to end. And so when we pray, your will be done, is it really our desire that God's will be done? Or do we trick ourselves somehow into just simply asking for his stamp of approval on our will? As we pray, your will be done, there's actually two aspects. We're asking if it's possible to know God's will, but also we're asking for the power to do his will, to be part of the accomplishment of his will. So we don't just reduce God to a heavenly bellhop. We give him requests, he replies. No, this actually is we're praying that somehow we would be involved in his service for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. We're praying, Father, may the fullness of your purposes and commands and intentions be done. I hope we're learning to pray in this manner because I know my temptation. I know what goes, percolates in my heart. I pretend like I'm praying for God's will, but what I'm really asking is he would allow my will to be done. But he bought me with the blood of his son and put the seal of his spirit on me. He owns me. I belong to him. 
And so it should be the cry of my heart that may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about it for a moment. How is the will of God done in heaven? Perfectly, without any hesitation or interruption, with no rebellion, with no contrary desire. As we pray, your will be done, we're praying along with the prayer, your kingdom come, because we desire that God rule over every aspect of creation with his perfect glory and power. We're praying we want earth to look more like heaven. And we know it will happen one day, but somehow in the mystery of God, he includes our prayers in the accomplishment of it. And so we pray, your will be done. At a meeting years ago of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Bobby Richardson, who at that time was second baseman of the New York Yankees, offered a prayer. It's a classic prayer. It's a simple prayer. He simply said this, Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm convinced that if we were to spend more time praying in this manner, may your name be hallowed. May your name be great. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. If we were to pray more in this manner, a lot of the things that we pray about, we would probably start to leave aside because we recognize they don't fit with God's priorities, with God's plans. Instead of just praying for ease of pain or comfort in a situation, we might pray that we would have deeper fellowship with Christ and know what it is to fellowship with him and intimacy that he would be our strength. Instead of praying perhaps that we never get persecuted, as millions of Christians around the world are facing even today, we might pray, Lord, strengthen us so that when we are persecuted, we will not betray you. Recently, I heard a story of persecuted church in China. They said, how do you want Christians in the West to pray for you? They didn't pray to be delivered from persecution. They said, pray that we would be faithful to Christ. God has promised, and Jesus spoke many times in the Gospels, that persecution and difficulty will be the norm for believers. He warned his believers over and over again, you will be persecuted. So as we pray for his will to be done, are we ready to accept that that might be part of it for us? And are we willing to lose everything? Because if we have Christ, we have everything. And we'll find out that Jesus is all we need is when Jesus is all we have. We're willing then to recognize because he is the sovereign one, he is our father who is in heaven, hallowed be their name. Are we willing to pray in a similar manner to Bobby Richardson, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's the prayer that reaches the heart of God. That's part of his divine design for prayer. And if you're like me, you need help to learn how to pray this way. We all need help to learn how to pray that way. Thirdly, 
after looking at the divine design for prayer, we come to presenting our greatest needs. After Jesus has directed us to focus on his name, on the name of his Father and the kingdom of his Father and the will of his Father, he says, now our hearts will be reoriented so that we know how to pray for ourselves. We know how to pray for the needs around us. We know how to pray then accordingly to his name, his kingdom, and his will. And we'll understand then that prayer is a privilege as we get to spend it with the eternal one. It's a responsibility as it is used for the accomplishment, as part of the accomplishment of God's will. It's an opportunity because you can stop and spend time with the one who controls time. And it's a blessing as we see him answering prayers and bringing glory to himself. And so as we've been called then to have our attention focused on him and our prayers, focused on him and how we think, focused on him and our devotion, there's sometimes we're a little bit hesitant to pray. We won't go into great detail here, but let me suggest a couple reasons why we might be hesitant to pray. First, we doubt God. We might doubt that he really is interested in our prayers or that he really wants to hear. We just think all he's going to say is no. Our Father who is in heaven. Who is our Father? And as you focus on who he is, let the doubts fade away. Because the God, the one being who knows you the best, loves you the most, and invites you into fellowship with him. But secondly, we might, we might have doubts about our prayers themselves. Is this really worthy of bringing to the Father? And in that case, then we need to analyze, am I praying in correspondence with the will and the character and person of God? Am I praying with selfish motives? And it becomes that check then where we recognize we know when we're trying to play games in prayer. So maybe we need to stop then and confess our sins and say, Father, forgive my unbelief. Father, forgive my whatever it might be, my pride, my selfishness, my wanting to protect my own reputation or honor. But we can confess our sins to such a one, and he receives us. And my friends, nothing surprises him. He is not shocked by anything that you will say to him in prayer. Remember we said last week, we do not inform him of anything he didn't already know. But we do get wisdom as we pray. We do get more of his knowledge as we pray. And we can pray. You know the freedom that you feel when you've done something embarrassing? Because we've all done something embarrassing more than once. But when you find a safe person with whom you can share that, here's the application. God created you. And he has the safest set of ears in the universe. And so you can go to him with anything at any time with all your needs, hurts, heartaches, desires, hopes, aspirations. Because he's the one who calls us and beckons us to come. And so that prayer then as we're praying in that manner, it does change us because it's changing our attitudes, our thoughts, our desires, our words, and bringing them into conformity to who he is as he's revealed himself in his will and his character. 
and this command. So as we focused on the greatness of God and Jesus has given us three things to pray for, he then gives us three things to pray for now that our hearts are properly oriented about how to pray for ourselves and for others. He says, pray for bread, the stuff of life. Give us this day our daily bread. It seems clear enough, but actually in the text, there's a little bit of discussion among commentators. Was it give us the bread for today or give us bread for the morrow, meaning tomorrow? The difference would be when you pray in the morning, oh, Father, give us the bread that we need for today. Whereas at the end of the day, you'd say, oh, Father, give us the bread that we need for tomorrow. But are not both true? Now, I think the ESV has rightly rendered it. Give us this day our daily bread. But the key point is we look to him to be the one who meets our needs. Our faith is to be daily. Our prayers are to be daily. Our personal relationship with the Lord is to be daily. And we ask him to daily meet our needs. To pray for bread in this context really is just to pray for the basic essentials of life. You know, in most cultures, even today, bread is the basic element of their diet. It's present at every meal. Well, who is our father? He's a provider, protector, the giver of all things. And so he says, pray to me, pray to the father to give us what we need for physical life. Bread and water and clothes and shelter. And that becomes a challenge for us who live in a world or an area of such physical abundance. With grocery aisles and shelves that are stacked with our refrigerators that might be overflowing. Do we really know what it is to give us this day our daily bread? The day workers in the time of Jesus would work for their wages for the day and then go off and buy what they needed. They would have understood this. And so maybe we need a little help to recognize what does it mean to be so trusting in the Father that we trust Him to meet the needs of each day. I mean, God is abundant, He's lavish, He's creative, He's powerful. And he created the world to be inhabited with the life-producing, life-giving strength that is in creation that comes from his creator. He created the earth to flourish and grow and multiply and provide. He created the seeds and the rain and the dirt. He put us in families. He causes the rain to fall. He gives us work to do. And so that's how we pray to him each day. We recognize that everything we do we do in his strength. And he invites us to ask him to provide for us. And then he empowers us to oftentimes be part of the answer. You know, in the wilderness, God gave his people manna. Now, they had to go out and collect it, store it, prepare it for consumption. But the Lord gave it. And they went and got it. But he said, I'm leading you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And he gave them a warning. He said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. 
My friends, even with grocery stores that are full and refrigerators that are overflowing, we must remember that it is God who has given us the strength, the insight, the wisdom, the industry that we can produce whatever wealth that we have. And then Jesus would go one step further. He would say, look, I'm the bread of life. So as we're praying then that we provide daily for our physical needs, we're really praying, Jesus, take my life. I can't live without you. All that I must have must come from you. This daily dependence on Jesus who is the life of all. And him was light and this light was the life of men. And so we get it all from the one who alone can provide it all. And I like The attitude of the author is Proverbs 30. He said, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This fits in with the Lord's prayer. Let your name be held high. Let your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. And as we pray for our physical needs to be met, we pray for our spiritual needs to be met. So we pray for forgiveness, being at peace with God, and forgive us our debts. Sometimes in our rendition of the prayer we have trespasses, but here we have the word debts. Let's think about what it is to have a debt and to whom the debt is owed. You see, every time that we sin, friends, we accumulate a debt against God. We owe him glory, obedience, faithfulness, service to worship him truly and wholly and fully. And we don't do it. Not even for five minutes. And so we sin. And we owe him a great debt. And we commit treason against him. He's commanded us to be holy as he is holy. And we talked about what that means. That ultimate being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But if we recognize who we are before who he is. How can we ever repay such a debt against such a holy God? And the answer is we cannot. Sometimes we play games with ourselves. We think our tears of remorse will be enough to cleanse us from our sins. Or we just, we're going to do better. We're going to do harder. We're going to try more next time. But all that's doing is just heaping up more and more wickedness before him because we're stained before God. And ultimately, it's only the righteousness of Christ that counts. And we must be found in him. So that we can grow in true righteousness. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. And confession is the solution. But confession is ongoing. It's daily. When was the last time you got quiet before the Lord and confessed your sins to him? When you looked at the Ten Commandments. When you looked at the attitudes of your heart. When you looked at your behavior. When was the last time you said, I'm sorry, but I was angry with that person. 
I was wrong that I looked so quickly. I was wrong to be in that place. I was wrong to say what I said. I was wrong to not say what I said. We tend to try to brush off our sin. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. We need to confess our sin all the time because it keeps us humble, mindful of our need for God. And you might say, but I keep committing the same sin over and over again. So I just stop committing, I stop confessing my sin. That's wrong thinking. I want you to write in your notes Jeremiah 31, verse 34, and Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12. The promise of the new covenant is that we would know him, we would know the Lord, and he would remember our sins no more. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him. So we might think, well, I, I keep committing the same sin again and again, and I don't want to go to the Father and, com and confess the same sin again. Why not? He doesn't hold it against you if you're in Christ. So you go to him and you say, Father, I did it again. He says, did what again? He doesn't hold it against you. So as often as you sin, confess it immediately. Because we need to. He commands us. We want to have fellowship with him. We want our prayers to go unhindered. We want to experience deeper fellowship with him. But if we don't confess our sin, in a sense, we're keeping ourselves in bondage. Because as we confess our sins to God, we bring it into the open. And then his grace, his mercy, his light, his joy can can come in. That's why we have the good news of the gospel which says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can't surprise him with any of our sins. He knows what they were and he sent Christ to die for them. So confess them and receive the cleansing that comes through Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are many people that are suffering mental health conditions, even physical conditions, who could be set free if they were convinced that they could be forgiven of what they have done. Oftentimes what people need is not just medicine. They need a Christian to come alongside them and help them confess their sins and receive forgiveness from Christ. But we want to justify ourselves, don't we? Or we want to blame others. Or we want to redefine our actions so that they're not really sin. Or we run away in shame, staying away from the church, staying away from other believers. Or we're going to work harder to overcome, but none of those strategies will work. And all of them are disobedience. Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We have a merciful Father. Just come clean. I already know about it. I want you to feel my forgiveness and I want you to experience my favor and I want you to experience my peace. And that's how we experience and we'll move quickly to the next point. A reconciliation with God which allows us then to be involved in a ministry of reconciliation with others and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Now that hits a little close to home. We want to experience the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the joy of God. But are not always quick to apply that to others, are we? Now we need to understand what Jesus is saying here and what he's not. We take the whole of of Scripture and we interpret it in its context. Okay? So what Jesus is going to talk about throughout the rest of the gospel is that it's not because of what we have done that we receive our forgiveness. That would mean then that we are our own saviors. That would mean that we are the merciful ones, and that can't be. We're not our own saviors. We can't demand the mercy of God. We can't require the mercy of God. But what Jesus is saying is as we have been forgiven, so we are to forgive others. He's, remember who, in his context, he's talking to his new followers, but who's listening in? It would be the religious leaders that would be listening in. And the Pharisees themselves thought that they had the prerogative to hold sin against those that they deemed inferior or those who were those great sinners. They gave them a second-class status in society. And they didn't think they had sinned that much. And so they were nitpicking about what other people were doing. They proved the adage that people who are out to find fault seldom find anything else. And Jesus exposes their heart. And they respond with anger, with cursing, with judgment. That they were committing the same sins that they were accusing others of having committed. But Jesus brings the gospel in and he says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And so if we have been recipients of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, then we should be those who apply it. I like what the late British scholar John Stott says. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Imagine if we did that. Imagine if we did what Christ called us to do, which is to confess our sins to one another, to forgive one another, to reconcile with one another, because we're confessing our sins to God and we receive forgiveness. How many of the issues and problems that we have would fade away? Most of them. So it requires reconciliation. It requires people coming together. It requires people to take the tough road, the tough decision. And we need the Lord's help to teach us so that we can obey, so that we can truly pray, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. My friends, if you've been touched by the grace of God, and if you've realized the depth of your own sin and the just judgment that it brought about and that you deserve that it was brought about on Christ, how could we not offer that same forgiveness to others, that same mercy, that same kindness, that same grace? We all have encountered people who are dealing with a cold and unforgiving heart. And they don't, they don't draw people to Christ. <laughs> they push people away. And so we need each other. We need the community of saints to help each other to deal with these issues, to, to confess, to be set free. Because we're really good at holding on to sin. We're really good at holding on to grudges. 
<laughs> but as someone made the comment this week, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get any better. But somehow we think that we're going to make that grudge a little better. And the only way to deal with it is confession of sin. And so after we've prayed for our physical needs, after we've prayed for our spiritual needs, we pray for protection, free from evil and downfall. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what's interesting in this word is parasmos can be translated as tempting or as temptation. And if you recall back in Matthew 4, when we looked at the temptations of Christ, we said, is it, is it the temptations of Christ? Is it the testing of Christ? And we see that in the providence of God, he often uses both. He does not tempt his people to sin, but he does test them to see if they will be faithful to him. Our spiritual muscles only get stronger as they are tested. But God will test us. He tested Abraham. He tested Moses. He tested the people of God in the Old Testament. He tested Jesus. He will test us. And so as we pray, we pray that we would not be brought into a position where we would give in and be given to the temptation and sin against the Lord. We pray for spiritual strength. And that's confirmed by the next phrase, deliver us from the evil one. I think a better translation is the evil one rather than evil. We're involved in an ongoing spiritual battle. And just as Jesus himself was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, he passed the test. And he says, I will be with my people and he can deliver us so that we would pass the test. So that we would resist temptation, that we would endure testing, so that our whining turns into winning in the spirit. We pray for protection from evil. We pray for the ability to endure suffering. And lastly and quickly, Jesus ends with an important warning. But if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He's just giving you a reminder of what he has said. The Father wants us to respond to others as he has responded to us. And so we need to take heart. That we don't allow our hearts to become cold against others. That we don't allow bitterness to well up. Because bitterness kills spiritual vitality. And we don't want to be those who are known as having an unforgiving spirit. Having a bitter spirit towards others. I think there's a warning there. If someone is hanging on to an unforgiving and bitter spirit, and I have been in situations in our years of ministry, whether it was in the Middle East, whether it was in West Africa or elsewhere, people hang on to grudges sometimes across generations. How can you possibly have reconciliation? How can you possibly have spiritual vitality when Christians will not forgive each other? So one warning is possible that they're just simply disobeying, and in their disobeying, they can't expect any blessing from God. But maybe there's a deeper warning. Do they even know Christ? Can the heart that has been touched by the mercy and grace of God really hang on to sin and be embittered? Don't ask the Lord to do for you what you're not willing to do for others. I should never ask for the Lord to do for me what I'm not willing to do for others. Because the fact that I have been forgiven frees me to forgive. There have been people over the years that have been upset with me. 
And as we sit down and talk, I'll let them know right up front, you can never do anything to stop me from loving you because I'm secure in the love of Christ. Because the relationship with that person and the relationship with Christ is more important than keeping ongoing dissensions going. And so there's a challenge here and an opportunity. Because I believe all of us want to grow. All of us want to grow in our spiritual vitality and our spiritual life. And I put in your sermon outline in the bulletin a guide that I picked up from Martin Luther on how to teach us to pray in a way that is according to the principles and character and concepts of God. So you may find it helpful to just slip into your Bible and occasionally take it out and pray according to what you find there. Pray through the Ten Commandments, analyzing your own heart. Pray through the Lord's Prayer, doing the same thing and, and retraining our minds into how to pray so that we're praying in a way that touches God's heart. Now we'll continue in a couple of weeks in this Sermon on the Mount after the family camp and we'll look at the idea of fasting and you'll recall that Jesus taught on three different spiritual disciplines. Giving, prayer, and and fasting. We'll get to the third one. And he'll bring it up again as we go through the Gospels. I think he knows we need to hear something more than once. But what are some lessons that we can take away? Because our Father invites us to pray, we will go to him regularly in praise and fasting. He's always beckoning you to come. Secondly, because we pray to know God, we will focus on his glory kingdom and will in our prayers you'll find this adds richness and depth to your prayers because god knows what we need we will call on him to provide for us on a daily basis because we have been greatly forgiven in christ we will forgive others in the same way and it might be in there that we pray oh father help me to obey you in this matter And lastly, because God is our protector, we will pray for daily guidance and protection. Yes, this has taken some time to get through this passage, and there's a lot to chew on. And my prayer is that you will take the sermon outline, the the guide for prayer, reread this text during the week, and you and the Lord spend some time together. And that, remember, last week, get away to a quiet place and pray. And say, Lord, let's take care of business. And you'll find him to be ready to receive you and to work in your life and to continue to build in you the Christ-likeness that he desires and what he will accomplish in your life. Let us pray. Our God and our King, Father, forgive us. This is a spiritual battle. So often we're just quick to turn away and just to focus on what we want to focus on. And it reminds us of the discipline we need and the strength that we need to grow into praying according to your word, according to your ways. But Father, as we are in your presence this morning, we say, have your way in us. May your will be done so that we become more like Christ, more pleasing in your sight. And we become salt and light evermore in this community in which we live and serve. Father, there is plenty for us to turn to you for. And thank you that we can find you ready to receive us. 
Thank you for Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for the church, his body. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, our guide. And thank you for the word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May you lead us this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.